This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. How you doing, Max? I'm good. How are you doing today, Joris? I'm great. I'm great. Really, really excited about this episode, man. Really, really excited. Right. Ooh, why are you so excited? What we, who do we got? Who's, who uh, are we talking to? Well, we have the honor today of having Greg Morris on the show. And uh, Greg Morris uh, is a true 3D printing pioneer. And he had a company called Morris Technologies at one point. It was one of the first companies to bring, uh, one of, definitely the first official company to bring metal printing to the U.S., uh, and really a metal printing pioneer and really enabled a lot of other people uh, to do metal printing and was kind of like this, had this group of people around him, like this group of people that really helped industrialize metal, especially for the United States and powdered by fusion. And then all of a sudden his company was snapped up by GE and overnight a quarter of the metal capacity or something in the world just disappeared. And that was a bit of a shock to everyone. And this started a machine buying kind of industrialization cycle uh, that we haven't uh, uh, seen the end of at the moment. Uh, Greg, meanwhile, at one point after a couple of years at GE, now is at, uh, well, you started a thing called Vertex, which was sold to Printerpress, which is now called Zeta. And uh, Zeta is a company that is kind of like a scale-free uh, medical device manufacturer. So let's say you have a spinal implant idea, maybe you're a surgeon, maybe you're a university, something like that. They can take you from idea to design to development to FDA to manufacturing. They're kind of your partner for that. So uh, yeah, super great, and uh, really really excited to have uh, Greg on the show today. Welcome to the show, uh, Greg. Well, great to be here, and uh, hello to both uh, you, Joris, and Max. When you got started in metal printing, it was like in the very early days, right? So how did you come in contact with the technology? Yeah. What was the first metal part you held? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I can tell you that uh, now. Just a reference, I guess, the technologies that we're, we're talking about right now would be the laser-based powder bed uh, systems, because as we all know today, there are a number of different modalities under the metals uh, banner. But at that time, it was uh, basically uh, the laser bed, uh, uh, sorry, laser-based powder bed stuff. So anyway, um, we had a relationship, first off, based in Cincinnati, and we had a relationship with a local, a large corporation called Procter & Gamble. Some people may have heard of them. They're a consumer goods company. And uh, we uh, we had some folks over at one of their tech centers that were operating uh, some of their polymer additive machines. And I happened to be over there, uh, more or less, seeing how things were going and talking to one of their executives. And uh, the executive I was talking to said, hey, you have a minute. And uh, I said, sure. So he went into his office and came back out and in his hand, he was holding a couple of direct metal uh, laser-centered components that were built off of an EOS system that had come from their UK facility. And he showed these little inserts to me, and I was uh, pretty impressed by the detail resolution and uh, just wasn't something I had seen uh, previously. And he explained how that technology worked, and I said, hmm, that's interesting. So went back to the office and got with my partners and we ended up uh, heading over to uh, Germany to meet with EOS, and and uh, long story short, that was in two thousand and late two thousand two, and in early two thousand and three, uh, we brought over the first uh, direct metal laser centering machine to North America. That 
was a, a EOS M250 machine. So yeah, the first parts I held were not our parts. They were actually direct metal mold inserts. And um, the funny part about it is we we thought, hey, this is fantastic. We could be uh, uh, change our business model a little bit and, and provide rapid mold inserts. People might think that's very interesting. That was sort of the basis that we brought the machine in for and thought maybe we'd sell a direct part or two. Uh, and of course, as it turns out, uh, the demand was really for direct parts, not necessarily for uh, inserts at that period of time. Okay, so that's interesting. And yeah, we probably are going to use a DMLS just and the <laughs> the AOS <laughs> to talk about terminology, right? That's an AOS terminology, of course. Or, and we're probably going to use sintering. And there was other companies using laser cusing. So that was like before they even invented the terminology and everything made sense. Um, so that's why DMLS uh, is a term that a lot of you may be really familiar with, and other people are like what, <laughs> depending yeah. on when you when you joined, right? Uh, yeah, we're we're as bad as the government, you know, in our acronyms, I guess, in our industry. So, oh my God, we love our acronym, but every yeah. industry, I feel like, loves their acronyms at some point. So, <laughs> anyway, so so in the beginning, well, uh, you know, everything worked, right? And it was like fantastic, just worked out of the box, right? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just worked uh, like a charm. <laughs> of course, that's not true. Uh, we, uh, you know, I think it's important to understand we, we started with a machine that was probably, to be honest, the 250 uh, was kind of getting to the end of its its life as a technology uh, within a year or two. And, and uh, truly, within a couple of years, we ended up getting a couple additional machines that were based on the fiber laser uh, technology versus the CO2 lasers. Now that gets kind of technical and I don't want to go down the technical uh, rabbit hole here, but what it enabled us basically to do is open up the world of possibilities of alloys that we could uh, begin to work with beyond just the couple that we started with using that CO2 laser. To, to kind of go back to everything worked perfectly. Yeah, the machine worked, uh, but making parts was really difficult. Uh, you know, you have to you have to, you know, we discovered we had to f come up with a lot of ways to creatively uh, design and support and orient parts to have them come out the way they needed to come out. What we really found out, though, is because EOS, um, again, at that period of time, back in 2003, they were one of a handful of companies involved in making this equipment. They were based in Germany, and a lot of the people that we worked with uh, in the fields that we worked in, which was aerospace and, and Department of Defense, uh, required us to have uh, no uh, geometries uh, leaving our facility or for sure leaving the country. So we had to figure a lot of things out on our own, which at the time was very painful because we went through a lot of scrap parts. Um, but actually was a blessing because we had to learn a great deal ourselves. And, and we didn't just have somebody from, say, EOS telling us, well, this is what you do. Um, we, we had to go through that sort of uh, school of hard knocks ourselves. And we, we always kidded around as, as our journey continued and we got involved in other alloys. We had a big box out in the back of our uh, facility. And when we did tours, uh, that box was usually half to three quarters full of scrap parts. And uh, one of our folks would always sort of uh, jokingly call that the uh, 
the our box of broken dreams, which uh, it certainly was. Uh, and I always looked at it and thought, well, I'm looking at probably about half a million dollars worth of scrap parts in there. So yeah, not for the faint of heart. And, yeah, yeah, that's that's not a great way of looking at that scrap box and being like, that's a lot of money. So <laughs> yeah, it it for sure was. But uh, you know, in the end, that's that's what new technologies are about, and it's just as we all know, not for the faint of heart, but you either overcome or you don't. And uh, we had a great team. Certainly, uh, you know, I, I'm not, I was not the technical guy trying to figure that stuff out. We just, we had some exceptional people uh, that did an awesome job of working through all those uh, problems and, and we got smarter every single day. Okay. And the interesting thing is how do you hire people or how do you put people on a problem? You don't even know what the problem is, right? So you have very little process control because you don't have the data. And because of that, you really don't know what's going wrong. So how do you find a person to solve that, right? Yeah, it's not I don't I think the short answer is at least back then and, and probably to some extent, uh, perhaps even now, uh, you don't just find somebody that's walking around and say, hey, uh, can you come and, and, and work on this problem that you have experience on? So, you know, we, we worked with, uh, you know, the, the folks that we had internally working on some of these things were uh, engineers and tech, uh, you know, high-level technicians, people who worked in lasers uh, and laser systems, not necessarily with additive, um, but they had been around lasers and optics. So understood some of those fundamentals. And then combining that with, uh, frankly, some some pretty high sophistication with a few of our customers like GE, who had the metallurgists and who had additional technical resources, uh, really allowed us to overcome some of the, the issues that we had uh, been experiencing in the early days. But again, a lot of it trial by error and, and a lot of it just trying to say, all right, so we don't know what's going on necessarily. What additional monitoring things, even basic things, can we put into the machine, which we did? Uh, what kind of uh, post steps can we take on these parts to learn? So test bars that we would go have tested. Uh, we'd look at micrographs uh, to see what the grain structures were or what kind of porosity was uh, present. Um, so, you know, all of that were, were things that we did and many others started to do because there was not a book, if you will, that you could just go to and say, this is uh, this is the problem. Here's how you solve it. We, we really kind of uh, were pioneering many of those things. What, what was the, the path like to saying, OK, this is a curious technology. It doesn't work. The curious technology kind of works. We've got some exciting customers from the defense community. You know, when did you think this is going to be like a the, the future of your business? When did you think, oh my, wow, this is this is going to be the really the, the main thing we're doing? Yeah, no, there there was a distinct, uh, I, I would say, period of time, uh, and, and I would describe it this way. As I mentioned, we started with the 250 machine, which had the ability to produce direct metal, which was a bronze-based alloy kind of parts, and direct steel and direct steel H20, which were carbon steel and, and a tool steel-like alloy. So one of our earliest customers was uh, uh, GE Aviation. Um, we were literally 10 minutes away from their headquarters and, and a lot of their engineering groups. So that made uh, geography our friend. And we were working with a few folks at GE, um, literally two in the early days that were the champions of using this technology, even in spite of some of the failures. And one of the early feedbacks we got from GE was, hey, you know, great detail resolution, love you're able to produce parts um, very fast compared to the castings we normally have to go out and make. But direct metal and steel are really not the alloys we want in our world. We, we want something that's a nickel-based alloy. 
So uh, we fed that information back to EOS and, and uh, in time, you know, within probably a, a year, year and a half of having the M250 at our facility, we came to understand they were working on an alloy in Germany for the dental and medical industry called cobalt chromium. So uh, we, we got enough information about that alloy and, and realized, you know, we really need to be running that alloy. It's much better than these other ones. It'll hold up better. It'll, it'll probably do more what GE was looking to do with parts than what we could do at the present time. So uh, we had to kind of bend a little bit of arms to, to get them to agree to make us a pilot customer for that material uh, in North America because it hadn't been fully vetted yet. So uh, the only hitch with that is that the cobalt chrome ran on the fiber optic laser and the 250 machine was not upgradable. So that uh, really made us uh, have to go buy a, uh, a new machine, and that was the M270 platform that had the fiber laser. So we did that, and we put in the cobalt chrome. And then I would say for probably a period of a year, maybe maybe a year and a half, we made parts and we uh, provided those to GE, who was doing a lot of internal testing of those parts. I think during that period of time, as we started to get results back about the mechanical properties, how the material uh, built, uh, which it built very well, um, how the material survived and some of the testing they were putting it in, we increasingly started to have a lot more confidence that this is something that could be real. Uh, meaning this could be something that could actually be used in production parts and in production environments. Now, that was the very earliest of seeds. And I and I distinctly remember, I can't tell you the, the year or the day or anything, but it was in that period of time, I was taking a friend of mine um, to a, a, an early morning doctor's appointment. He had asked if I could drop him off on my way to work. I said, sure, I'll pick you up and drop you off. So I, um, on the way, he was kind of asking how things going at, at uh, Morris Tech. And I said, you know, things are going pretty well. And I said, but I'll tell you, we're we're in the middle and maybe even the, the back end of kind of figuring out if this alloy that we've been spending a bunch of time on and a lot of resources on is going to be something real. And I said, if it is, it's going to be huge. And I said, if it's not, we're kind of betting a lot of the farm on going down this path. So uh, I remembered that conversation, uh, dropped him off. And, uh, you know, it was probably six months later that I think we knew we really had a tiger by the tail. And, uh, uh, you know, a lot of luck, maybe um, right place at the right time. But I give a huge amount of credit to the alloy cobalt chrome because that really set um, that set the path forward to think about the metals technology as being something that we could actually make in a uh, production environment. Yeah, because it went really quick for you guys. Like it was like it must have been really difficult being in the middle of it. But you guys actually in the world, the grand scope of things, went like quite quickly from having that M two fifty extended to having like all of a sudden five M two seventies and like whoa. And then you know that's when and people in Europe are like, what? Who are these people? <laughs> what are they yeah, doing? Yeah, you're you're right. We started with the two fifty. Then we then I think it, I think the sequence was then we purchased uh, the the two seventy to get a hold of the cobalt chrome. And I think, I think actually, as, as I'm looking back now, um, when I was dropping my friend off, we had just made the decision to uh, acquire two more M270s, which would have brought us to four. And, and that was the betting the farm uh, portion of things, because, you know, all of a sudden, uh, we were starting to invest in a technology that, frankly, probably still wasn't really making us any, uh, any kind of decent return. 
uh, just because of all the learnings that we had to go through and the uh, aforementioned scrap parts that we would have, et cetera. But, um, you know, that bet paid off. And you're right. We, we, we kind of got on the radar screen uh, pretty quickly after buying those two, because at that point we were out touting that we had four metal machines. And a lot of people started to, to be like, what is going on? Why, what are they doing? And why do they have these machines? Uh, and I started, you know, then I started getting on the circuit, if you will, and, and talking about the technology, trying to explain what it was that it could do. And, um, you know, that's where things really uh, got interesting. And, and then other companies started to explore it and, of course, acquire the technology and put it in their facilities as well. But I think by that point, we had a pretty pretty robust head start, uh, call it about three years head start, four years head start. And, uh, you know, we didn't look back. We, we just tried to keep making that distance further and further from the next person that would get the technology. Yeah, have you ever like, you know, you know, you could have thought about, have you ever thought about other things like e-beam or when later on a binder jet, you, you're very, very, very laser powder bed focused, but did you ever think like, Oh, wait, let's switch to e-beam or let's look at e-beam or let's do more e-beam? Well, uh, uh, yes, we did. In fact, uh, toward the latter part uh, of our existence as Morse Technologies, before GE Aviation acquired us in late 2012, I think it was like uh, 2011, we acquired an EBM machine. And we had been looking at it. Um, you, you know, the, the truth of the matter at that time was that the laser-based uh, powder bed systems were just a lot more capable, I think, broadly than the EB systems. And the EB systems were probably pretty specific for certain products and, and uh, even industries. So medical uh, clearly was one that embraced the EBM technology, um, whereas we found laser for the type of things we were doing seemed to fit us much better. And I can explain that very simply by saying the parts we were making had highly um, intricate and very complex internal passages. So getting powder out of those internal passages uh, for those who are in the industry and know the differences between laser and electron beam, the, the powder coming out of the laser machines is still in a loose form. And in the electron beam, it's uh, uncentered powder is uh, not as free flowing, if even free flowing, and uh, needs to have some kind of mechanical agitation to get it out. So, you know, think of the uh, think of the things like the fuel nozzle that ultimately became a pretty well-known component. And one of the reasons GE ended up acquiring us had very, very complex, uh, small internal passages snaking around and w EBM would have been impossible uh, to get the powder out. So laser was really the only way to go for that. And, th and those type of parts predominantly were what we were uh, contending with um, at that point in time. So laser fit us very well. But we did have interest in EB. It was just very late in the game that we ended up uh, acquiring one machine. Okay, okay. And then, and yeah, well, talk a little bit about other customers because you're so associated with GE that like, so what other customers did you have in those begin days and did you grow with them as well or, or was GE really the focus? Well, no, no, we had, we had many customers. I, you know, I would say that the vast majority of our business, I, you know, call it 60, 70% was involved in the uh, aerospace gas turbine engine uh, field and the medical field. So other customers for us included all the, the, the major orthopedic guys, uh, not that we were doing production uh, components, but we were definitely um, talking to them and in many cases supplying them components that would be for their cadaver labs or would be prototypes or what have you. Uh, many of those guys ended up putting their own machines in house. Um, so that never became anything of, of major uh, path for us. Uh, but on the aerospace side, 
in the Department of Defense side, we certainly had uh, pretty much worked with every gas turbine engine manufacturer uh, in the United States and a few in uh, Europe, as well as other parts of the world. And uh, we got involved in many companies that were related to uh, satellites and, and defense and other things of that nature. So especially as our suite of alloys uh, expanded beyond just cobalt chrome, when we got involved in Inco 718, some stainless steels and aluminum. Uh, again, we kind of take for granted today that you have this whole suite of uh, potential materials you can use. But back in that period of time, uh, there were only a few. And, and while there were other alloys that were certainly being developed and coming on board, the uh, the fact is that those didn't probably happen until a little bit later again in our tenure. Um, and if they did come out, they still needed uh, the same kind of uh, testing and rigor that we put in behind the other initial alloys we were working with. Okay. And then, so, you know, and, and just, were you, were you thinking of this, this, this industrializing this at the same time we were looking at, for example, post-processing and the whole chain and trying to save money? Were you really thinking of it that way? Or was it really a very much, were you thinking like, oh my God, we're going to make one nozzle now, and then we're going to make a hundred thousand later. Or were you much more focused on just getting these single parts out the door? Uh, yeah, no, great question. So we, we were focused, Morse Technologies was focused, uh, really, I think, on, on the uh, prototype and, and the uh, development side of things. And it wasn't necessarily because we didn't want to look at production. It's just we were so early in the game. And most OEMs, most companies, uh, frankly, uh, the vast majority did still, by the time we sold the GE, didn't really know even what additive metals um, you know, could do or, or what it was, or let alone how to design to it. But the GEs of the world or anybody that was in the medical field or the dental field, uh, we, we took a stab at trying to suggest uh, we, could, we could produce those things in volume. In fact, we even set up a sister company called Rapid Quality Manufacturing. And the express purpose of setting that separate company up was that they were going to be our production entity uh, with all the production systems and focus that a development and prototype uh, entity probably wouldn't have. Um, there are pros and cons to doing that, but overall, that was our, our plan. Uh, we were just, I think, at least five years too early setting up that company. And and by that, I mean, nobody was ready to go to production. They, they still had years left of testing and, and trying to make sure that this, uh, you know, parts made were going to do what they needed to do. But keep in mind, uh, we were also involved in these highly regulated industries like the aviation industry or the medical industry, where there is a lot of testing before any kind of new technology launches into a production environment. So um, anybody who was in a non-regulated or uh, less critical type application typically just was too early in on their journey. Um, and, and, you know, there was a lot of education we had to do with them first about you know, what these technologies could do. And most importantly, to design them so that they could be cost-effective. Because uh, as, as many know, if you just take in a traditionally designed component and say, well, let's make it additive, it probably, chances are pretty good, it's not going to work great. It might build, but it may not be optimized. And uh, optimization is obviously a very critical component um, of design or of using additive, uh, no matter what modality it is. And during that whole time, I mean, I think, 
now we're, we also have like on the software things, you, you're talking before about taking things for granted. On the software side of things, we have NTOP now. We've got like procedural tools to generate lattices and stuff like that. You know, but from a design point of view back then, what was the idea like to get the most out of metal? How were you being able to use like the, you know, standard AutoCAD type of tools in the world to try to do these really advanced design things? Well, yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, the lattice structure, the automatic automatically producing lattice structure type software is, is phenomenal. And yeah, you're right. There's a, a number of them out today that make that job pretty easy. So, you know, I think in that period of the earlier period of time that I'm referring to knowing how to design to, to additive was more just about, uh, it, you know, a lot of the lessons we learned. So uh, yeah, I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the components we early on tried to make, uh, just taking the traditional design, was what they call a rake, which is an instrumentation um, component that is used in test engines uh, to measure, say, emissions or temperatures or pressures and et cetera. Well, the Formula One guys use that a lot, right? They use 3D printed rakes uh, a lot, right? In aerospace yeah, as well, I, right? I, yeah, I, I suspect they do. Um, and, you know, it's it's usually a sub instrument looking thing. It, that's not huge, but it's got, uh, you know, they try to put in uh, different probes. So they have uh, the, the traditional designed rake is a, uh, or at least was a, a sheet metal formed and bent, uh, welded together with um, bent tubes inside that are brazed or welded. And then you have this hollow cavity where you have cooling water that would go in, et cetera. So, we initially tried to just build that in additive. And what we found is it, it, it failed. That was one of those many failures and very frustrating. You'd get uh, two days in on a build and, and the thing would crash. And the reason was uh, because those little tubes that we were trying to uh, build that were kind of free floating, if you will, inside the rake uh, would get high enough where when the recoding arms came across, they would hit the little tube, it would give a resonance and the powder that had just been laid over, it would flick off and then the laser would come down. And, you know, the next thing you know, you have a glob of material and the whole thing's done. So we finally stepped back and said, look, we need to rethink this and design with how would we make this part um, to be function as functional or more functional if we had the freedom of just designing it with the rules that we had come to understand uh, needed to be applied using the additive technology. And that's exactly what we did. And I, I think today those uh, type of components um, at certain companies are probably produced only in additive. Uh, they, they've gone away from the traditional way of doing it because it's faster and it's less expensive and they get better performance out of the additively produced rake. So, you know, that's an example of where it wasn't really about necessarily taking the full power of additive to the extent you would have lattice structure, but but utilizing some of the more obvious things, like I can snake passages around to get better cooling or heating. Um, I, you know, being able to design a part where uh, you have to be cognizant of the fact that you have stresses building up because in, in essence, we're micro welding and that produces stress in the metal. So you, you can't have sharp corners. You need little radiuses and, and all those type things. Those are, those are the, the design to a process that makes it optimal versus just uh, out the gate saying, okay, I'm going to go with something uber complex like lattices. Uh, we really didn't even need to do that initially. We just needed to design effectively for the, the way that additive builds. Okay, and then were the parts you were getting at that time, were it just like people that came to you like, okay, this doesn't work in any other technology, 
please, could it work with you guys? Is that how you, you got business back then? Because it must have been very difficult to kind of like get people to trust us. Right, before anyone knew what it was or understood it fully. How did you attract them to do this? Yeah, well, that, that that's kind of why we started, uh, if you will, in, in the aerospace world um, in a big way, in the medical world as well. Um, but the aerospace was very successful because we're talking about alloys that are difficult to work with, nickel-based alloys or alloys that have uh, uh, you know, a, a degree of difficulty in either machining away from a big piece of bar stock or, or casting or what have you. So I, I think how we really approached it is we said, look, we, we have freedom of design now, more or less, and you know, we can design components uh, or you, you know, you, Mr. Customer can design the component, um, and we can produce it probably a heck of a lot faster than say going out and getting a casting made. So if you look at say, uh, for test rig purposes only a high pressure turbine blade, uh, you have a complex internal passage that's created by making a ceramic core. And so the ceramic core needs a tool. The, uh, part that, goes around, the metal part um, needs a tool to shoot the wax. And that whole process is both uh, very expensive and takes uh, a long, long time to have those uh, have that tooling made and to have those castings produced. We could do those same parts within weeks where it would take months for them to do. So I would say initially, the argument was, hey, we can take uh, and, and some of your, not all, but some of your parts that you're making that are castings or that are uh, really long lead time machine components. And we might be able to additively produce those. It's not going to be one-to-one, but it might be enough to get you um, through your test hurdles or uh, get that part in your hands uh, where you most often are going to probably make some changes anyway, and then have to go back and repeat the whole process again, which is more cost and lead time. So we can shorten that. We can take those schedules and move them back to the left, you know, if you will, on the calendar. We can reduce your cost. And that was a very compelling argument for a number of, of parts before we even got into the optimization of the design conversations. It, it was really about lead times and reducing cost, uh, which was highly attractive and still is, obviously, for any company trying to produce parts on a timeline. You know, how did you kind of like, well, it's, it's nice that you said, oh, we went out and bought like a couple of these machines. You know, how do you kind of keep the faith or how do you actually kind of as a cold-hearted businessman, like make the decision to keep with this technology? You know, was there data for you? Did you have a strong belief in this? Was it like a gut feel or did you just incrementally buy more and invest more as a the technology? Because I think between the time you invested this and the amount of money and time you spent on this, there was a leap of faith element there, right? There wasn't like a, a, a you know, that you, you mentioned before, like kind of like a bet the farm kind of a thing there. Like how do you calculate that? Or how do you motivate a company to do that? Yeah, it's, uh, in our case, you know, obviously I can only speak for us. We, I, I think it was a combination of a few factors. First off, I would say there was a lot of risk involved. There's, there's no doubt about it. Uh, you know, would it have sunk us if the four machines we had uh, ended up not working out when the parts started to fall apart six months later and, you know, we found that out too late? Probably not, but it would have set us back a number of years. So there was a calculated risk that said, I have enough data points, not proof, but enough data points that seem to be pointing to this could be a very exciting technology. And so if we had waited for proof, you know, I think we would have lost competitive advantage. So we went with the data we had, 
And I guess you might call that some kind of a gut feeling, uh, but it's really based on the, the, the information at hand and said, you know, this is a calculated risk, but if the risk pays off, it's huge. If it doesn't pay off, it's pretty devastating, but it, you know, it's not going to kill me. We at least hope it doesn't kill me. Once we got past four machines, um, I think we knew pretty comfortably at that point that we had markets. We didn't know if it necessarily would make it into production or how it would make it into production or how big of production opportunities there were. But we knew there were uh, more than enough companies out there that would want to use the technology, even just in the development and prototyping arena. So the number of machines we ended up with when we finally sold to GE, which were 21 in total metal machines, we felt pretty confident at that time that even though we had a number of machines and we had a, a number of a lot of cost wrapped up in the lease of those machines, we felt pretty confident that somebody would be able to use it. I think our bigger fear throughout that period of time was, and you know, it was uh, unfounded, but you can't help but have those thoughts, is that uh, somebody was going to come out in a month or two months with the Star Trek replicator machine and obsolete the technologies we had just uh, invested or still owed money on. That was our bigger fear. Uh, not that the people couldn't use the parts. It was more so that the technology would be eclipsed. And uh, as we all know, that's really not the path of... Uh, if any technology or most technologies. And uh, to this day, you could argue that some of the machines that are 10 years old are still to some degree useful. They can still produce parts. They may not be the latest, greatest, but they're, they're still out there and can still produce good parts. So I, I think it was just, uh, you know, that was our bigger concern, not necessarily that people would abandon the technology. Um, you, you know, it was more that risk. Can I just ask, what was the funding mechanisms that you used uh, in, before, before you sold? Like, was this VC'd or did you guys bootstrap or how'd you do it? Yeah, no, great question. So, because uh, now I, I kind of have experience in, on both sides of the equation. So um, ours was uh, self-funded and that occurred. Uh, I, I'll spare you the, <laughs> the hours of, of long story here, but I grew up in a family business. It was in the steel dis uh, distribution industry. When I graduated from college, I went right into that business. And um, along with my brother, we were the sixth generation getting involved in that business. So um, it had been founded in 1850, and uh, we were, were coming into a, a business that was premature. The industry, if anybody knows that industry, uh, steel distribution is a very mature and cyclical industry. And uh, so for the, the first three years I was there, I was trying to learn the ropes of the business, but we ultimately made the very difficult emotional decision to sell the business, but the right business decision to sell the business to a regional distribution center. I worked with them for about three years in outside sales, and then we started Morris Technologies. But the reason I give you that background is because uh, the, the company was 98% uh, owned by my parents, and they very uh, graciously uh, gave us a little bit of seed money to start Morris Technologies. And then the rest of it, we funded ourselves through uh, just traditional ways, going to the bank and getting bank leases and loans um, is how we funded our, our growth and organically grew ourselves over 17 years until we sold the business. Um, probably the scariest we, point in time for us was in that uh, 08, 09 financial crisis time um, because we were pretty leveraged, in, not horribly, but you know we had over $6 million of lease payments that we owed. Um, that was a little bit scary, but Otherwise, it was all funded through organic growth. 
Cool. I'm, you mentioned now that you've had experience on both sides. Do you have a preference between venture capital versus uh, self-funding? I mean, I get one's much more nail-biting because it's your own money. Um, but, yeah. but you then don't have to deal with, with outside external entities and stuff like that. So I'm just curious from your experience, which one you found more enjoyable, I guess is the right question. Sure. Look, there, there, there are pros and cons to each path. Uh, so I'm not I am not the uh, the person uh, within Zeta that that has to uh, uh, contend or work with that financing part of things. So that's not that's not my role at all. I'm more advisor role if you want to look at it that way. But uh, my preference, just and it's just me, um, is probably more the slower growth, um, self funding over time. Again, there are pros and cons. And yeah, I lost a lot of hair and years off my life <laughs> trying to uh, figure out how to sometimes, uh, you know, make, make payroll and uh, you know, the whole nine yards and, and uh, the partners of Morris technologies, myself included, we'd go without salary for periods of time. And, uh, and, and ultimately in the financial crisis, even though we didn't have to sign personally, when we first started the business, we, we were forced into having to sign personally. And that was a real watershed moment. I mean, we either were going to, sign or, or we were going to walk away. And um, we took the risk and, and said, we'll, we'll go ahead and sign. But, you know, I, I don't want to repeat it. I don't think uh, it's for the faint of heart. Um, you know, anybody who has started a small business and run a small business understands that it's, um, it's hard. And it, it has its moments of uh, elation and its moments of stress that uh, you wonder why you're even doing what you're doing. But I prefer of the two. Uh, I prefer to uh, do the the slower grow, self fund, and uh, I think just for a variety of reasons that suits my personality. But uh, you know, we never would have been an Amazon. We never would have been a Google, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, you just have to realize the trade offs that when you go VC or you go PE or you go any other type of outside funding, uh, you have different masters and you have different timelines than if you're trying to self fund. Yeah, I hear you about the hair loss. That's one of the reasons I, so I can't. I can't do uh, my own again. I have to go get external. Um, but yeah, uh, once you once you've done it, yep, yeah, Man, it's, it. yeah. And I think it's, it's, there's two things that are really interesting. I think one thing we always talk about Kickstarter. So many people got Kickstarter. So many people got VC funded. But there's also a ton of bootstrap companies in 3D printing, and I think it's nice you pointed that out. But there's also a lot of people, especially on the service side, that were just like bulking up on these bank loans for so many years. And I think the banks get too little credit for really kind of building a lot of that service portion of that industry on something that must have seemed like a complete voodoo to them uh, in, the, in the beginning, you know? Yeah, I, you know, so I I, I, I agree with you. And, and I, I think, look, whether it's... Uh, a VC or PE or any other kind of external funding or banks, um, you know, one always has to be appreciative of the fact that people, whoever, wherever they're coming from, are risking their money on an idea and on a business. And, and that's super important. Everybody has, should keep that in mind. Um, to that extent, I would say, uh, you, you know, it's also important people realize that every dollar is very precious. Um, that being said, as it as it relates to the banks, um, you know, they're, as everybody knows, much more conservative. So they're going to try to limit their exposure. Um, they take uh, pretty good calculated risks. And yeah, I, I don't want to sit here and tell you that um, they just would uh, automatically give us the, the, the lease uh, amounts that we needed to go get the next machines. I mean, sometimes 
that was predicated on other equipment we had, some of the CNC backend equipment, et cetera, being part of their ability to dip into that should we default on the uh, additive portion. But, you know, they, they had their, their risk pretty well calculated. And especially when they got into the personal loans, um, you know, they're basically saying you default, we have the ability to come in and take everything but your retirement account. So that's a, that's a scary notion. But they want your skin in the game. They, they don't want you just to turn around and say, here are the keys. I give up and, and away you go. So I, I think it's, uh, it, it is a valid point that they, were, they have been in our industry and many, many other industries, um, the ones that have helped to get people the capital they need in order to grow. But uh, sometimes that comes with this pound of flesh. And sometimes it also comes with uh, more strings attached um, than just here's the money and, and uh, let us know how you do. Fair. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And then, yeah, the other thing is just leasing because there's so many people that have benefited from leasing. That, that was very difficult in the beginning as well. And we were trying to do it for people and, and trying to being like the first company to try and do leasing with 3D printers. And these guys are like, but I need this thing to last. Like, can I sell it? You know, they were like, can I sell this thing if I repossess it? Like, I don't know. <laughs> I had to prove it to them, you know? So I remember that was a very difficult path as well, the leasing. But and another thing is like, yeah, it, True. There was no market. There was no secondary market. They were like, yeah, who sells these things? Well, this is guy in France, uh, you know, <laughs> sells them, right? Uh, it comes yeah, from no, France. Yeah. yeah. To to totally valid point. And, and there were, you know, those folks took some calculated risk for sure. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm glad they did because it, it certainly helped folks like ourselves. And then the other thing is that what we see is either in Northern Italy with the orthopedics thing and also around uh, Leuven, for example, with Materialize and Associated the University, we see these clusters, right? And and do you think like, yeah, you guys are in Cincinnati, you know, you were well there because there was a traditionally steel making industry there for a long time. You know, do you think that, that this would have worked if you were somewhere else? Was it really a very, very Cincinnati local game? Because, hey, look, GE's over there, we're there, we're driving distance, everything's really close. Was that kind of that closeness really important? You need to look each other in the eyes in the beginning? Oh, I think it helps. But, you know, we, we did a lot of traveling to other parts, parts of the country as well, of course, and, you know, met with customers and, and uh, you know, had and the face to face was super important, um, taking sample parts and showing them and having to point and explain uh, how the technology worked. Um, you know, I think Cincinnati was, uh, as it turned out, was a, a really uh, fortunate place for us to have been in this technology. I mean, yeah, you're right. We had the likes of a GE, uh, we had Wright Pad Air Force Base up the street. Um, you know, uh, medical was represented pretty well by Ethicon Endosurgery, which was a division of Johnson and Johnson in Cincinnati. So, um, and then you add to that uh, the Cincinnati Dayton region and uh, in, in the Midwest, I guess more broadly, uh, very well known for their machining, um, tooling background that, that went back decades. So, uh, you know, complex parts were already a part of the ecosystem uh, in this region. And yeah, they may have been cast, they may have been machined, but uh, you know, there was a lot of industry, there was a lot of manufacturing, the roots went pretty deep. And so by virtue of that, uh, you, you had a number of companies that were likely targets for us, but uh, the, the biggest one, you know, being GE locally and, and people like Ethicon and others like that. And it's also kind of interesting now that uh, Wright Patterson Air Force Base and all the kind of like the, the Hill Air Force Base, all these other guys uh, in that network, let's say, they're like one of the big tooth fairies or kind of like <laughs> magical funding uh, uh, guys of 3D printing at the moment, right? They're, uh, the stuff they're doing is, is insane. Uh, the kind of like the, the funding and the development they're bringing into the business at the moment. 
for, for sure. And it's great to see. And, you know, I, you know, I think, uh, you know, 30 years in the making or however you want to look at it, but they, they've been aware and involved um, uh, in, in a variety of ways, but they certainly have accelerated their thinking about additive. And, and I think there's been a, an epiphany, generally speaking, about, hey, we can't just keep reinventing the wheel with every time somebody wants to go out and qualify a part and uh, each OEM has to qualify their own part. So you know, we, we really, at least in the U.S. and, and the uh, uh, in this particular arena, need it to have uh, somebody, in this case, the government, come in and say, look, let's let's try to get there faster, all of us, versus trying to reinvent the wheel and spend you know seven times as much money as we ultimately need to in order to qualify or get our basis for uh, making sure things are going to work out. So they've been a fantastic partner uh, for a lot of companies, and I think the funding is welcome. It's uh, certainly needed in order to help with some enabling um, of, of getting lead times down on some of the systems they're looking to field and uh, to reduce costs. And I think there's, uh, we're just really scratching the surface. I think there's a lot more to come on that front. Yeah, I totally, totally. I think one client asked me recently, like, who's the biggest like uh, investor in 3D printing? I was like, AFRL. And he's like, what? What's that? Well, who is that? <laughs> it's the Air Force <laughs> Research Lab. They're, <laughs> they're outspending any VC at the moment uh, <laughs> doing this stuff. So let's let's go to the part where all of a sudden your business is going really well at this point, right? You've got, you've expanded, your, your bet paid off, right? Uh, your bank manager is probably happy with you. You're really leading this burgeoning industry. It's 2013. You've never been working in 10 years in uh, metal additive. You're in this business with your family or your brother. And all of a sudden, like, GE comes and buys you, right? What was that like? What was that decision like? Was it a tough decision to make? and Or was it like, oh, yeah, totally, we'll do this? Uh, yeah, no, good good question. So there, so let me back up a little bit. There are three partners, equal partners in our business. So, uh, you know, myself, my brother, uh, Wendell, and a mutual um, good very close friend of ours um, named Bill Nowak. And so uh, three of us started that Morris Technologies. And uh, as you uh, already know, and as I said, we organically grew it. The tough period for us, though, in 08, 09 was uh, really for, for us, it was 2009 uh, for a variety of reasons. But that was, a, that was financially a very tough year. And that was you know tough for many, many companies. Um, we happened to be a victim like everybody else was during that period of time. You know, I, I learned a lot. Uh, we all learned a lot more than we ever wanted to know about how banks work and how the financial systems work. And, uh, you know, navigating that was not pleasant. But we, we finally did get through it. And in 2010, things started to look up, but we knew we didn't want to repeat that again. So at that point, we said, you know, maybe we ought to go out and look for a partner. And that's when we started to explore, uh, should we be trying to join up with a private equity firm? Should we try to find a family office? You know, what what are the potential mechanisms? And on that journey, uh, GE uh, basically around that same time came to us and said, hey, we're interested in potentially joining a JV with you guys. Um, and, and, take, and it was around the field nozzle. And uh, so we started having some conversations with them and JV discussion turned into, uh, well, are you guys at all interested in selling? And at, at that period of time, we had an M&A firm, a, a mergers and acquisition firm already engaged. So we started talking to them and, you know, I, they started asking us, uh, you know, here, here we are, this small company. None of us had really been through a process like that before. And so we were being asked to provide a whole bunch of information and we were very cautious. And, you know, they were our, probably our biggest customer. So we didn't want to make them mad, but we didn't want to give the keys to the kingdom before we had some kind of deal. So I, I think probably they looked at that as us being a little bit obstinate and not serious about wanting to uh, potentially evaluate a sale. 
So um, all of a sudden they, they kind of went silent, um, which in M&A world means they're, they're really not interested anymore. And so they started to uh, explore other companies out in the world. And, and a lot of things just kept pointing back to us and, and companies that they would approach. So now you need to talk to these guys, meaning us. And uh, so uh, there was a, a moment where uh, another colleague of mine and I were over at GE visiting with an engineer. Um, and uh, we asked him, we said, hey, by the way, he was on the team evaluating us. And we said, what, whatever happened to you guys? You guys kind of went quiet there like four months ago, five months ago. And he looked at us, he goes, well, we thought you weren't interested. And we were like, no, we, <laughs> what gave you that idea? So uh, literally like within a week, things just moved very quickly. When they realized we actually were serious and, and I think they kind of figured out what was going on, we quickly were able to consummate the deal and, and uh, within probably three months, went through all the due diligence, got, came to an agreement on the price and, and decided to sell the business. Was it difficult? I I think uh, there was a part of it that was difficult, but it was a, a great event for everybody. You know, it was a great event for us as owners. I think it was a very good move for GE. I felt like our employees, which mattered greatly to us, um, we felt they were going to have a great home to grow with and, and have probably more opportunities um, career-wise than just uh, us. And keep in mind, uh, GE, again, was our largest customer, and we knew they were going to do something. They were either going to Greenfield or they were going to find somebody else. So to some extent, and they never, to their credit, they never bludgeoned us with that, that idea. But you know, we knew that the handwriting was on the wall, that their business would decrease at some point in time. And uh, you know, we'd probably be better off being a part of GE than we were trying to uh, you know, backfill a lot of the work that we were doing with them. So I, I don't think any of us regretted it. Um, there are, of course, things I look back on, but you know, I, I'm very happy with how that all played out. And I, I honestly wouldn't change it. Um, I, I think it was a, a great event for everybody. And, and GE is a fantastic company. I really enjoyed my five and a half years with them. Um, fantastic people. And um, you know, I, I, it, it's been fun to see where the industry has gone post-acquisition. And as you had pointed out in your intro, uh, uh, there were a, there was a lot of activity after that acquisition happened. And and what was it like then to all of a sudden be in this giant corporation? Uh, you know, with the, like all these management layers and 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 gee, of course, its own very own tribe, if you will. And and was that very difficult for you? Because you said yes, it's like it's it's nice being there with a bunch of people that know what they're doing, right? And then and especially on aviation. Wonderful. But, but, you know, was it difficult for you as well? Cause it's such a big company all of a sudden. You know, I, I had a, probably a different path than a lot of people. I mean, it, it was to some extent, um, but I, I'll go back to the people and, and the culture of GE. Uh, I, they were so welcoming of our company and of everybody. Um, they, they were super excited about additive. Uh, so it just, it's like any big company, you know, there are pros and cons like any small company there are pros and cons. So of course there's bureaucracy and, and, and decisions take a lot longer to be made. And uh, yeah, I might've been used to saying, okay, we're going to make a decision. We're going to move fast. And you know, what would have taken maybe a few hours of discussion with the partners now takes two months to, to get through the various wickets at a big company. But uh, in the end, I, I just think you have to have uh, eyes wide open. You know, they're very, very different animals. Anybody who has been in a small company is going to a large one. I try to give the heads up of, hey, this is probably some differences you're going to experience. Every company's culture is different, so may not be this way. But, you know, just be prepared from a macro standpoint. These are things you probably have to contend with. And the flip side, anybody coming from a large corporation is probably used to a lot of things that they just take for granted that a small company 
may not be able to offer or have. And, uh, you know, you got to wear a lot of hats and do a lot of things yourself in a small company. But you also have the freedom of quick decisions and, and uh, you know, different kind of atmosphere. So pros and cons to each. I think uh, an open mind, either environment can work for people. Um, just really depends on, uh, you know, one's mindset. So first, you did your duty, if you will, by integrating the company because you could have, you know, left earlier, but you, you waited until you know, G had the technology under control and, and your people integrated and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden you could have just, you know, went and sat on an island, learned how to sail, that kind of stuff. Why do you then afterwards <laughs> end up, end up like, you know, starting Veritex after that? Yeah. So, uh, so you're right. And for two years I did enjoy sort of that downtime, um, you know, was on some smaller company boards, advisory boards, and some um, charitable boards and, and, and got involved in those type of things. So the reason I got involved in, in Vertex is some of uh, the, some of my colleagues that were uh, not owners in Morris Technology had a desire to uh, try their hand and have their own thing. And so uh, we talked about that for a while. And I said, sure, you know, I'll be a part of uh, helping with that, uh, both as an investor, as well as my brother and Bill, they both were investors as well. And I said, you know, I'll put maybe, you know, give you about 30% of my time just to help. You know, I'm, I really don't want to be full time. And uh, we all know how that story goes. It's difficult to do part time. So, you know, I kind of got sucked in more than I had wanted to. But uh, ultimately, the, the reason we did that is because I, I think, you know, we all saw opportunity out there still. And the industry had been through a huge amount of consolidation. And I, I still believe that. I still think there is a lot of opportunity, uh, even though the industry has changed dramatically from when you know I was involved in it as Morris Technologies or even GE. So that's the reason we did it. I, you know, it wasn't like I was looking and had the itch to, to necessarily, you know, have my own company again. I don't feel like that's the case. I feel like I'm more advising and trying to help um, than I am actually uh, spending, uh, you know, the, the 10, 12 hours every day uh, in the business uh, like I had been doing for Morris Technology. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of how, how that came about. And then at one point, of course, you were you were bought by uh, Zeta, right? So, and that's a completely different challenge. That that to me sounds really exciting. I mean, Vertex, I was a bit confused by. I thought, well, once more with feeling, you know. But I, I get it with the team and all that kind of stuff. That sounds like a nice gig. But then, of course, Zeta, of course, is a completely new challenge in a sense that that uh, this kind of scale free manufacturing partner for medical, right? Well, yeah, and, and Zeta actually is is not just medical. Um, there, there's kind of two parts of Zeta. There's Zeta Health, which is definitely the medical side and what you've been referring to, and then there's uh, you know more recently we've kind of uh, segregated into the the Zeta Technologies. And Zeta Technologies is probably closer to what Vertex was doing. It's the uh, space industry, the Department of Defense, the aerospace industry. Those are the primary sort of focus uh, focal areas. You know, there is, it's, it's, it's a different uh, model for sure, um, you know, which is, uh, you know, BC funded uh, up to this point. And, uh, you know, that's allowed for scalability much faster. But, uh, you know, again, that's not without its challenges too. And in this past year, um, from an investment point of view, if anybody is in that world uh, have, have realized in the past year and a half actually have been very difficult for uh, VCs and for PEs and trying to raise funds and uh, a lot of that driven directly back to some of the interest rates that we uh, saw, uh, you know, the percentages going up. And it was just safer for people to park their money in a higher interest bearing account than it was to risk going out and funding some of these companies like the Zetas. 
Uh, we think that's starting to change, and we think 2024 will start to see that um, accelerate a little bit more as we go through the year. But, you know, it, it's it, it's it's not just a simple, geez, I get the VC firm to come in and do it. I mean, they you know, they have expectations too. And But that said, Zeta's made a lot of progress. I mean, you're right. We, we've uh, joined up into a new facility. It's about 73,000 square feet, state-of-the-art. And uh, our mission now is to, to really fill that up with work and um, not just prototype and development, but really more production work. And that's the mission that the team's undertaking right now. Okay, that's super cool. And one thing I really liked that you did was that you bought a bunch of add-up machines, right? You got at least eight, I think. And I've been a huge fan of them. They, 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 they seem like they're really built for production, let's say. They don't have a lot of the features or a lot of the screaming kind of multi-laser craziness than a lot of other people do, but they do really seem like they're really practically made literally for a tire company to make a lot of something, right? So so is that also what you liked about them or? Well, sure. So we, we currently have, uh, I believe it's five of those add-up machines and, you know, there, there, there are reasons why we went down that path and they are, they are nice machines. Um, but I, I will say like every machine, there, there is not a single machine that's out there that doesn't have its little quirks and nuances and things that still need improvement. And they're no different. So uh, that said, they, they have, uh, you know, it's a nice working envelope. They do have the multi-laser. Um, the add up 350s, I, I think is like four laser machines. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, they're for the right applications, I, I think they're a, a very good machine. But then I would say for the right applications, um, a lot of the other guys are as well. So, um, yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, good machine, um, great company to work with, and uh, we, we've been pleased with that relationship. What do you hope to achieve in the next couple of years? I mean, are you, do you have de- definite goals for yourself to really kind of get there? Or, you know, it's never too late to make your mark in the industry, right, Greg? Oh, you're, you're talking personally? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you, do you have anything you want to do yet? I mean, no, I look, I, I, I've, I've said this often and, and, and it is absolutely the truth. I, I happen to get name recognition, but it's not because of anything that necessarily I've done. I mentioned it earlier, but back in the Morris Tech days, um, you know, I was the guy for the company who was kind of doing a sales role, if you will. Um, so among other leadership things I was doing, one of the, the areas, and I actually enjoy it, was going out and talking about the technology and making presentation at shows and meeting with customers. And by virtue of doing that, I, I sort of, you know, undeservedly in, in, in many cases became that face of additive metals. And while I appreciate that, the, the truth is there are, are teams of people, super talented people that really made it happen. And uh, what's unfair in this world is oftentimes that's the case, that there are people, uh, the ones that are in the trenches, the ones that are putting in these huge hours and, and really uh, being creative geniuses and coming up with solutions. Uh, they're, they're not the ones who are out there. They're not the ones who get the recognition, even though they're the ones doing really the hard work. And I, I, I always, uh, you know, I'm always sad about that because they're uh, both at Morris Technologies and Rapid Quality Manufacturing uh, at GE and now Zeta. There, there are some really talented folks, and it's just a shame that they wouldn't be the ones to get the limelight and the ones to get the recognition. So, from my perspective, no, there's, you know, I'm, I'm just feeling very blessed to have been a part of a, an extremely exciting industry with wonderful people. Uh, really neat technology, learned a great deal. And uh, I look forward actually to uh, just kind of enjoying things and helping other people uh, wherever their paths may go and whatever technologies they want to be in. If there's some kind of uh, experience or knowledge that I can 
help with and pass on, I, I, I enjoy doing that. But I have no other plans other than to uh, maybe advise and, and just uh, be there to help. All right. Well, thank you so much, Greg, and th- thank you for being on the show today. Thank you both, Max and George. It's been a pleasure. Um, thank you so much. And thanks for being here as well, Max. Oh, yeah. This was great. Thank you, George. And thank you for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod. Have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.